I'd like you to take a moment to consider the two questions that are on the screen before you. Does God like you? Is he happy with you? How would you answer these two questions? Whether because of suffering that we experience or our awareness of the ongoing struggles of sin in our lives, I'm afraid that many Christians would answer these questions negatively. I think many Christians have a deep and abiding sense that God is unhappy with them. When asked, does God love you? They might answer, sure, but in the way that a parent is obligated to love their child. But I'm not really sure that God likes me. Or if asked, has God forgiven you? They might answer, well, absolutely, I know he's forgiven me but I'm not sure that he's gotten over it yet. I'm not sure that he's happy with me yet. For all of the affirmations of God's love in the Bible, many Christians struggle to believe that God actually loves them, that he likes them, and that he's happy with them. In fact, you know, I was listening to this atheist on a podcast a couple months ago, and, and one of the things she was saying that drove her away from Christianity was this pervasive sense that God just never likes anybody. I, I think it's vital, not just for that reason, but for the good of our spiritual lives to wrestle with these questions. Paul wrestles with them as well throughout Romans 5 through 8. And I hope that in these three weeks, this week and the next two weeks, as we consider Romans 8, that you will find the answer to these questions and that you'll become convinced of them and that perhaps it could be the start of God transforming your relationship to him by allowing you to see yourself from his perspective and by allowing you to enter into not just the obligatory love that God has for you because you found a way in through the back door of this promise of salvation, but the fact that God actually deeply loves you, that he likes you, and that he's pleased with you. That what is stated in Romans 8, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, is true for you as well. So we'll begin by this morning considering Romans 8, 1 through 11, where we'll think about what it means for there to be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul explains that in Christ, those who are in Christ have Christ's past atoning sacrifice applied to them so that there's no condemnation before the judgment seat of God. But then he'll go on to show that presently, those who are in Christ can actually obey him and bring pleasure to God. And finally, in the last verses, we'll see that our future resurrection is confirmation that there will be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's begin in Romans 8, 1 through 3. Throughout Romans, if you've been tracking with our series, Paul has taught that every single person is guilty before God. The wrath and condemnation of God is poured out on all sinners. Simply just reality. 
Every person is guilty because they've participated in sin, and therefore, there is condemnation for all people. That condemnation is present now, and it will come at the final judgment. Nothing else, nothing can remove that condemnation. Obedience to the law of Moses cannot remove God's condemnation. Your own self-striving will not remove that condemnation. You being the best edition of you cannot get rid of God's condemnation. Paul makes this point very clear, and he teaches that only one thing can remove God's condemnation, and that is the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He's taught this all through Romans, and he summarizes it in verses 2 and 3 when he retells the brief story of redemption from captivity to sin through Jesus, something that the law could never do. He recaps it with this parallelism. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do, what the Mosaic law could never do because it was weakened by the flesh, the law of the spirit of life did through Jesus Christ. Now, when Paul says that the law was weakened through our flesh, and when he talks about being in the flesh, and when he uses that term throughout Romans, it can get really, really confusing because Paul is not talking about our physical bodies. So sometimes when we talk about our flesh, we're referring to our physical body. Paul is not referring to your body. Rather, he's referring to your identity in Adam. And it's kind of a weird way of saying it, but it harkens back to what Paul says in Romans 1, 1 through 7, when he says that Jesus is a descendant of David according to the flesh. That's according to his in-Adamness, his Adam-likeness. So whenever you come across that statement, he's not making a negative statement about our bodies. He's offering a negative description about our being in Adam, our identity as the offspring of Adam. So when he says that the law was weakened by our flesh, he's just saying that the Mosaic law couldn't bring about righteousness and holiness and goodness because we related to it as in Adam people, not in the spirit people. And we ex- examined that extensively last week. And as we looked at Romans 7, we saw that the law cannot save us. It cannot remove condemnation. It actually only condemns us more. And if Romans 7 was the end of the story, if Romans 7 was the end of your story, there would only be condemnation. But praise God, that's not the end of the story. God did something more, and he brings us into it in Romans 8. The rest of the story is that God initiated our salvation. He did something about our flesh, our inadamness. He took the initiative to recreate humanity so to speak, by offering a second Adam, Jesus, the true and better Adam, God's own son. In this Adam, Jesus took on our humanity, but he did so without sin. So he's exactly like Adam in that he's the first of the new humanity. He's exactly like Adam in his decision to obey had universal consequences, but he's totally different from Adam because he never sinned. That's what Paul means when he says that Jesus came in the likeness of human flesh. He was never in Adam. This new Adam, the perfect son of God, never sinned. And he offered himself up for you and for me. And through that atoning sacrifice for sin, all of God's condemnation was removed. 
Jesus made a way for people to be transferred out of Adam and into Christ, out of the kingdom reigned by sin and death and into the kingdom reigned by grace and life. Those who have been adopted into Christ now have no condemnation. There is no condemnation for us. So when you're feeling that God is out to get you, or that he dislikes you, or that he is inclined to condemn you, you must remember this past atoning sacrifice of Jesus and firmly believe that it actually took care of your sin problem, that it made a permanent and decisive change in the way that God looks at you and the way he relates to you. Now, in Christ, there's no condemnation. You're deeply loved by God, despite your foibles and flaws and even your failures. God loves you. Do you believe that? He loves you not in the obligatory way, but he actually likes you. He welcomes you into his presence. He welcomes you into the warm embrace of his love. When you're tempted to doubt that, when your heart condemns you, remember that God is greater than your heart. Don't let your heart dethrone God and his judgments. Don't let your heart set itself up rendering the verdict that God has not rendered. Instead, remember that Jesus' sacrifice has removed all condemnation. So you stand before God as his beloved son and daughter or daughter. This is good news, isn't it? There's no condemnation. And there's a confidence that ought to come, that God wants you to have, a certainty that God is not condemning you. God wants you to have that. Tragically, I think that some editions of Christianity forget that God actually does condemn sin. So all of Romans 1 and 2 and Three basically said there is condemnation for sin, and there are large sectors of Christianity that want to ignore that. So for those of us who are in the conservative Christian world, I think that there's a temptation to overreact, and in our declaration that humans are sinful, we forget that God has done something about that. And so we start to talk about Christians the same way that we talk about non-Christians. While we confess that we're simultaneously sinner and saint, we must remember that the sinner that we are has been totally redefined from condemned sinner to forgiven sinner. So it is right for us to affirm that even as Christians we are sinful, but it is wrong for you to suggest that you are a condemned sinner. Outside of Christ, all sinners are condemned. In Christ, yes, we're sinner and saint simultaneously but we've been transformed to forgiven sinner, such that there is no condemnation. So in your right attempt to defend the biblical teaching about the doctrine of sin and the sinfulness of humanity, don't let that undercut the true statements about the saving work in Jesus Christ. Rest in that and believe that you are forgiven. Now, to be clear, the Christian message is not that there's no condemnation ever. There is condemnation for those who are in Adam. 
there is condemnation for sinners. So I'm not suggesting that those who are apart from Christ ought to just ignore this sense of condemnation or wish it away. Because the Christian message is not that there is no condemnation for sin. It's not that it's all cool, dude. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to say that everything's groovy for everybody. Rather, I'm trying to say that there is condemnation for sin. It's real, and we cannot ignore it. But God didn't ignore it either, and He did something about it in Jesus. So we, as Christians, don't need to keep living with that hanging over our head. We don't need to keep living as if we are the sinner in the hands of an angry God hung out on a spider's web about to be dropped into the fire of hell. What Edward says in that sermon is not intended for Christians, but for those who have not yet found no condemnation in Christ. So run to Him, entrust yourself to Him, and find freedom and justification in Him alone. Christ removes all condemnation. So Paul's just shown us that Christ past sacrifice has removed condemnation, but now he moves forward to speak about our present moment. He argues, secondly, that Christians can please God. Christians can actually please God. So as much as we might affirm that Jesus' past sacrifice atoned for our sin, I think we sometimes struggle to move forward in our present lived realities and believe that we can actually be pleasing to God. Yes, we might affirm Jesus died for my sin and removed condemnation, but that was 2,000 years ago, and I wasn't born. And I know the Bible says God kind of knew me before I was made, but he, doesn't really, he didn't really know me. Now that I'm alive and God actually knows me, can I actually please God? Is he actually happy with me? I think some of us sometimes feel that God is so far away that either he doesn't really take notice of me and isn't pleased with me, or that he sees me and he really sees me and he's deeply displeased by me kind of a low-key anxiety that hums to the rhythm of our life. I think for many of us, as we relate to God, we feel like a kid who knows that parent-teacher conferences are coming and that the parents are going to see the grade and they're not going to like it. That when they sit down to talk with the parent, that they're going to be kind of embarrassed that I'm their kid. Do you feel like God is kind of embarrassed that you're his child? Do you feel like whatever you do, you just can't please him? We know what that's like in other sectors of our life, whether it's feeling like no matter how hard we, hard we try or how good of a job we do, we can never please a parent or a spouse or a boss. We know what that's like, and it's very demotivating. But that's not how God looks at us. But I wonder if that's how you think God looks at you. Well, Paul wants to make clear that God is not embarrassed that you're his child. God is not displeased by you. And in fact, you actually have the capacity to live a life that brings him joy and pleasure. Paul spells this out in verses 4 through 9. And they can be kind of complicated and we can lose his main point. So I want to draw out what's really clear. What's clear is that Paul is contrasting 
people who are in Adam with people who are in Christ. And he says that people who are in Adam do not have the ability to please God. But he says, but you are not in Adam. You are in the Spirit. His point is that you do have the ability to please God. He shows it in this way. First, those who are not in Christ, those who are in Adam, are hostile to God. And they, res- they refuse to submit to God's authority. They're unable to do so. And as such, descendants of Adam, through nature and through nurture, are unable to please God. But those who are in Christ, the opposite is true about them. They've received God's spirit. They belong to Christ's family. And now they can live in a way that actually pleases God. So the opposite of what is true for Adam is true for us. People in the Spirit can actually live lives that are pleasing with God. So prior to our identification with Jesus, we were like Adam, unable to please God. And in that situation, all of our righteousness was as filthy rags. The best thing that you could do would be despicable to God. Nothing could please Him. But in Christ, Christ's obedience is counted on your behalf. Christ is now your identity, so that when God sees your good deeds, it brings pleasure to him just as Christ brought pleasure to him. No longer are we characterized by the flesh, we're characterized by Christ. So therefore, our obedience is counted as genuine obedience, our righteousness as genuine righteousness. And now you can offer yourself as a sacrifice to God, and it won't be like Cain, whose sacrifice was rejected, it will be like Abel, whose sacrifice was received. So it's this point that I want to register some concern with how some Christians, and especially those who are living in the world of Reformed theology, talk about Christian life in the present here and now. Now, I'm, I'm not knocking Reformed theology here, but I want to propose that people who have been helped by Reformed theology but feel like nothing that you do good can actually please God are misapprehending Reformed theology. So sometimes I hear Christians, especially the best of Calvinists, talking about the Christian life as if God hates them, if God looks at what they're doing, and sees their righteousness as filthy rags, as if Christian obedience is almost displeasing to God, as if our walking in the way of Christ is a putrid sacrifice instead of a sacrifice that's well-pleasing, a sweet-smelling aroma to God. If we view our Christian lives in light of the mercies of God, then we ought to be inclined to believe that our acts of obedience actually bring God joy and pleasure, that our good works are actually really good, and that God is actually smiling on us when we obey Him. He isn't looking at our obedience and saying, man, that's just as sinful as all the other sinners out there. It's not as if your sinfulness taints your obedience and God rejects it. God's face actually shines on us. And this is the picture that Paul will give us in Romans 12, 1 and 2, when he tells his readers, in view of the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And how is that to be seen by God? Holy and acceptable to God, 
holy and pleasing to him. We'll talk more, hopefully next year around this time, what it means to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. But right now, I want, what I want you to grab onto is that when you give yourself over to God and you work to obey him, he is pleased by that. He sees it as a pleasing and holy sacrifice. And for that reason, instead of hiding from God like Adam did, we can walk in confidence before him in our daily lives. So I wonder if you've adopted that perspective consciously or not, that whatever you do doesn't really matter to God, that you can never please him, that you can never make him happy, that you can only irritate him because every good thing you do is contaminated by the residual sin that's in your life. If you've adopted that perspective, it's no wonder that you might not feel like God loves you or likes you. And it's no surprise that you might not be experiencing the transforming power of the Spirit in your life. It's because you're essentially denying that it's possible. In the same way that a sense of drudgery or depression accompanies a person when no matter what they do, their spouse or, spouse or, spouse, their spouse or boss or whoever just can't be happy with them. They're always irritated by them. If you think God is looking at you that way, that you can just never please him, you can never do what's right, then it's no surprise you're going to sense and project on God displeasure when in fact God is actually deeply pleased with you. And he's told you about it over and over and over again in the Bible. As bosses and as spouses and as parents, we can fail to express how truly delighted we are in our children and in our spouses and in our employees. But God's expressed how truly delighted he is in you in the Bible. You just have to read it and you'll see it. God is happy when we obey him. And when we can adopt that mindset, then we can live with life and peace before God. That's, that mindset has to be adopted by faith. That's what Paul is getting at in chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. The mindset of the flesh leads to death, but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. So by faith, adopt this mindset, that God is pleased as you walk in his ways. So if you struggle to affirm the possibility that God could be happy with his people for theological reasons, maybe you've misunderstood Reformed theology, I'd like to commend a chapter from Kevin D. Young's book called The Holy, Whole in Our Holiness. Chapter 5 is titled, The Pleasure of God in the Possibility of Godliness. In that chapter, DeYoung examines the way that the Bible talks about Christian responsibility to pursue holiness, but also about how God actually takes pleasure in it. And I use this chapter as an example because if you're deeply committed to Reformed theology and you, that's your hang-up for grabbing onto what I'm saying, Kevin DeYoung is the most Reformed of the Reformed. His website is called clearly reformed. So you are not violating reformed theology to grab onto the fact that in your obedience, God delights in you, that you can be truly godly. If, however, you're struggling to affirm the possibility that God is happy with you just for existential reasons, you just don't experience it. You just can't feel that it's true. I want to recommend Jared Wilson's book, The Imperfect Disciple, 
grace for people who can't get their act together. People who feel like Romans 7 is their life instead of Romans 8. Read this book and try to live into the reality of Romans 8 that there's no condemnation even for imperfect disciples. Our reality is not Romans 7, it's Romans 8. I hope that these two resources might prove helpful as you try to think about these things. So what kind of life is it that God is pleased in? Ultimately, it's a life that's marked by the love of Christ. Paul mentions here in Romans 8, 3 and 4, that we've been enabled to fulfill the law through the Spirit. Paul's not saying that we've been enabled to obey the Mosaic law. He's not trying to get us to obey all the commands of the Mosaic law. What he's trying to say is that through the Spirit inside of you, God has enabled you to be the kind of person that the law was trying to create but could never do. And that's the kind of person who loves. And again, we'd have to read ahead in Romans to get there. But in Romans 13, Paul just teaches that love is the fulfillment of the law. So what kind of life does God take pleasure in? A life marked by the love of Christ. Through the Spirit, we now have the ability to truly please God. So grab onto that truth. Your acts of love and self-giving are received by God as a sweet-smelling sacrifice and allow that to be great motivation to obey all of the ethical instruction that comes in the rest of Romans. Allow it to be deep motivation that drives you to live Christianly in this life because God can actually be pleased by it. So your efforts are not wasted. Your labor is not in vain. When you give up yourself to live a life of love and to do good deeds and walk in obedience even when you don't feel like it, it's not like that time when you tried really hard and you said, look at what I did, Dad, and he didn't pay attention or he talked about how he could do it better. God doesn't do that. God actually delights in it. So be motivated to live a life of love in obedience to God. So far, Paul's argued that Christ's past atoning sacrifice has removed condemnation, and now in the present, he's argued you can live a life that's free of God's condemnation through the Holy Spirit. But then as he closes this section, he points forward to our future resurrections as confirmation that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So if you've been convinced Christ's past sacrifice has removed condemnation, I can now live in a way that's pleasing to God, you still may wonder, but what about at death? Will things change when I actually stand before the throne room of God? When, when I pass through that portal of death and all of the things that I've hidden behind in, all, in my life, all of my successes or my money or my relationships, when everything else is stripped away, and I'm standing before God with nothing to hide behind, will there be condemnation then? Paul answers, no, because you will be raised to life. You will not be locked in death. Your death will not be God's judgment on you. It will be the portal to life where you'll receive great praise and eventually you'll receive a resurrected body. So once again, if we doubt that Christ's 
Sacrifice will remove condemnation even after our death. Paul sets us straight in a tightly packed argument in these two verses. Although Christ is in you through the Holy Spirit, our bodies will die. It's reality. You're going to die. But that death is not a sign of God's condemnation. Instead, it's the natural path because of Adam's sin. In life after Genesis 3, physical death is just going to happen. But God's condemnation is not going to visit us afterward. Paul goes on saying that the Spirit gives life because of righteousness, namely Christ's righteousness, because of the righteous one. Going all the way back to Romans 1, the righteous will live by faith. Well, Jesus was the righteous one that lived by faith, and as his righteousness is appropriated to us after death, we will live by faith as well, and fundamentally, we'll find that life in our resurrection body. The very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead presently indwells in us, and on that final day, he'll raise us from the dead as well. And just as Jesus' resurrection was validation of his righteousness and no condemnation before God, so too will our future resurrection be validation of our righteousness and of no condemnation before God. What all this means is that Christians can affirm that death is the result of sin and that we're all going to taste it. But we can be assured that death will not be a monster for us because we're in Christ. It's not the end of the story. Death is not the dragon that conquers the city. Rather, all it is is a portal that's already been passed through by our great king, our great king who's already walked through the valley of the shadow of death so that death won't have the last word. Christ has defeated death and he's transformed it into a portal to life. So now it's true we must face, face death, but it's been neutered of all of its power. It's just a painful precursor to our forever resurrection with Christ. Now we can think differently about death. When we close our eyes on our deathbed, we can know it's gonna be okay. You're gonna be all right. Because whether in life or in death, our lives are hidden with Christ in God and will be raised by the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Now no one in this room and no one in our church knows when we're going to be visited by death. Some in this room and some in this church who we love deeply have diagnoses that tell them death is coming sooner rather than later. For them and for the rest of us who don't know when we're going to die, this is a truth that we must be convinced of so that we can enter into that death knowing there's no condemnation in Christ. So that we can go into death not with fear, but with that quiet confidence that knows that God loves us and that he is for us. If we can grasp onto this, our facing of death and our meditation on death is completely transformed. It's not a monster. It's not an enemy. Listen to what Herman Bovink writes on the closing pages of his book, Ethics. 
He says spiritual life is first made perfect in death and then moves over to eternal life. We need to prepare for death, familiarize ourselves with it, and count our days. And let me, this is me, let me tell you, if you don't believe that there is resurrection hope after death, familiarizing yourself with death is paralyzing. But if you believe this, it transforms our reflections on on death. He goes on to say, this is a Christian way of meditating on death. Meditating on death is useful for us to humble ourselves, to help us set aside imagining a long life, to take away the strength and fear of death, and so on. We are to face death each day because after the cross, death is less. It's less powerful. It's it's less everything. It's less fearful. He goes on, meditating on death is especially needed in times of illness. After that, we must die in faith. So especially to those of you who have a diagnosis that tells you death is drawing near, as you meditate on death, you must die. But you must die in faith. And after that, life forevermore. We all ought to rightly meditate on death and allow our present lives to be informed by death, but more so we ought to allow that to be informed by the truths of Romans 8, 10, and 11. That if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through the spirit who lives in you. If that's true, then we can affirm Paul's words in Romans 14, 7 and 8, that if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. If we can make Christ our hope in life and death, death will be no monster to us and life will be no trial because we'll be living life in a way that pleases God. So there's no condemnation because of Christ's past sacrifice. We can please God in the present and there's no fear for the future because of the hope of the resurrection. If I could summarize everything that Paul teaches in Romans 8, 1 through 11 into just four words, this would be it. God is for us. God is for you. So what response can we have to these things? What more can we say? What can be said? What can be done other than to rejoice, to sing with joy, to raise our voices to the God who has removed all condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So will you stand? I will pray, and then we will sing this together. God, we rise now from our chairs, confident that all condemnation has been removed for those who are in Christ Jesus. We ask that where we are fearful, that you will remove that spirit of fear and replace it with a spirit of joy and sound mind of right thinking, of power, and of celebration in the God who is for us. And may this truth transform us for the rest of our days all the way to the day that we die. 
It's in Christ that we pray. Amen.